Welcome to Autumnus, a podcast about spiritual listening and synodality in the Catholic Church. My name is Lexi de la Ferriere, and I'll be your host today. Two key words in the Catholic Church today are listening and learning. This is especially true in the recent flurry of documents on synodality. Pope Francis has defined the synodal church as a listening church. And in the Instrumentum Laboris, the working document prepared ahead of the meeting of bishops in Rome this October, we read that a church committed to listening means a church that is humble and that has much to learn. But what does listening mean in an ecclesial context? What does a church need to learn and from whom? More concretely, how can Catholics across the world be better in the actual practice of spiritual listening and learning? To discuss these questions and more, we are joined today by Kevin Gary. Kevin is a professor of philosophy at Valparaiso University in the United States. He earned his PhD at Loyola University of Chicago in 2005. And before that, he was a student at Notre Dame where he studied political science and systematic theology. Much of Kevin's work focuses on the philosophy of education. And he has recently written a book that I think is just fantastic. Why Boredom Matters, Education and the Quest for a Meaningful Life. It's published by Cambridge University Press, and I think there are many lessons in this book that can help us to cultivate a disposition of attentive listening and truth-seeking in a world increasingly saturated with noise and distraction. Kevin, welcome to the conversation. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. So, Kevin, listening and learning in the context of the church, it's a, it's a big, big topic, a bit of an abstract topic. I thought, since you're a philosopher, and a big part of philosophy is kind of defining the terms we use clearly so that we're not talking across purposes. And it seems to me that often when we're talking about listening in the church today, people aren't always clear about what they mean, or they're sometimes arguing about concepts that really don't match up in their minds. So maybe we could just start broadly. Can you help us to pick apart this concept? What do we mean when we talk about listening? So, you know, thinking about it in the current moment, I think there's, you know, with Vatican II and then more recently, an impulse to democratize the church that we need to listen to one another. And so we've had sort of a top-down hierarchy. And as as laity, our, our job is to listen to the hierarchy. And so what the Synod is, is I think, rightly saying is that we all need to listen to each other. And so I think there's a, a, a wonderful egalitarian uh, impulse to see the spirit at work in all of us. Um, I, I think it gets tricky though, because we're listening, um, we're always listening to God and we're listening for authority. And I think that's a very different kind of listening than the imminent listening in the secular sphere, where we're, we're trying to um, be democratic and we're trying to govern ourselves, self-govern ourselves, and allocate resources fairly. Um, the kind of listening the church is calling us to is on the one hand, listening to one another, but doing it always in the presence of God. So there's this transcendent dimension to it. We've talked about Kierkegaard before, and he talks about you know Socrates as a teacher where the student and Socrates are engaged in the conversation, but the student really has um, all the knowledge inside of them. And Socrates is, is the midwife drawing them out. And um, in the context of Christian listening, 
uh, the student is actually missing something pretty fundamental, um, grace and Christ. And so it, it really requires a very different kind of disposition in, in terms of listening. So you're listening for God's transcendence working through each of us. And one way of thinking about listening to people is sort of let's do an opinion poll and, and sort of figure out what, what is the, the majority think of, of something. And um, I think this kind of listening is listening for an authority that speaks uh, to us through each other. That's really great because I think you've you've kind of drawn a couple parallel lines of demarcation, which I'm trying to, to come to terms with. So on the one side, you talk about this democratic impulse that characterizes our notion of politics, secular politics today, as opposed to a certain kind of authority of legitimate, almost inherent authority. So there's a tension there. There's another one you talk about kind of imminent listening in the secular sphere versus transcendental listening. And then you talk about the, this opposition that Kierkegaard makes between the Socratic teacher and the Socratic student, where the something's imminent within the student, and Christ as a teacher, where somehow Christ brings something to conversation. So we definitely have, you know, maybe we can't really define the, the dividing line, but there are these two streams. Can, can we draw that out a bit? Do you think, is there something that's fundamentally different or like concretely, practically, how is it that listening maybe in a secular context, such as in the political public sphere, is different from the type of listening that might be able to occur in an ecclesial context? I mean, how do we know the difference? Yeah, the, the distinction ecclesial and secular, I think, is important, obviously, politically. You know, John Courtney Murray in establishing that politics needs its own sphere and uh, the church shouldn't try to overdetermine or over control political spheres the way it perhaps tried to do 300 years ago. Uh, and so in, in that sense, it's important to separate the two ecclesial spheres and the kind of listening we do in a church and with a church community and the kind of listening we do um, at you know, a, a civic meeting in our town community. Um, I think though that um, those distinctions are tidy, but, but perhaps too tidy. And so in thinking about it in the context of teaching and education, um, the, the problem with the democratic impulse is it um, kind of inoculates us from trusting authority and, and actually learning from authority and sort of entering into a listening spirit. So even in, in the context of a secular classroom where you're learning a subject like chemistry, which is this bizarre language uh, with a periodic table, it does require students to actually trust a teacher, to trust that the teacher is guiding them somewhere to come to some pretty profound insights about the nature of, of materiality. And so even in that secular context, there's a place for trusting authority. And uh, I think that's really um, quite central in an ecclesial context where there is an authority that's speaking to us a truth about how to, how to live. And so I don't, I don't know if the distinction is that tidy, but you know, you're, you're asking what is the, the, the key dividing point or dividing line? Um, and uh, Tracy Morgan has a wonderful uh, article, uh, Alex, that you shared with me on synodality. And she talks about the, the, the census fidei is it requires a, a deep level of piety, being a practicing Catholic Christian, and, and, and that being kind of a prerequisite to the kind of, of listening that is going to take place. So I would say if we're going to find a dividing line, um, it's going to be in the habits and the dispositions of the listener and the practices and the way they're living their life, which, you know, 
needs to be in place for the kind of listening that the Senate is calling for. So maybe there is kind of, you know, the fruits, the fruits that are born, that might be some, some way of discerning, of making the distinction between this more secular kind of, this more imminent kind of listening and this more transcendental ecclesial kind of listening. That might be interesting. Just uh, on a note, um, yeah, so the paper is, is Tracy Rowland's paper on, uh, on, yeah, on praxis and synodality. There's a term that you used, and I thought we could talk a bit about that, because you, you talked about you know, the difference between maybe some sort of spiritual ecclesial listening and opinion polls. And a number of, uh, of bishops and, and other people involved in synodality have been at pains to say that the consultation phase of, of the current synod on synodality isn't an opinion poll. Why are we worried about opinion polls? What's even, it feels to me, even in the secular sphere, there's some concern about, about opinion polls as somehow leading us astray. Do, do, you, do you get worried about that? Do you feel that? You know, I, I see that in, in educational institutions where we're constantly looking to um, the business world for paradigms for how to organize ourselves and how to be more optimally efficient. And so perhaps the church needs to turn to Google for insight on how to, <laughs> to, to, to govern its own structures. And so I think um, we, can, we can get lost in um, different categories and different ways of seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, this is where, you know, the, the, the ideas that are popular in our cultural uh, lives um, just become the air we breathe. And so the opinion poll um, will reflect that back to us um, rather than how the spirit is is speaking through um, each of us. And so it requires a, a very different kind of listening. I'm thinking of like, you know, this might be a strange example, but, you know, Tocqueville's wonderful democracy in America, he didn't go around doing opinion polls. I mean, this was a, an ethnographic, careful kind of just trying to get a sense of who are these people and what is distinctive about this, this American ethos. And so uh, I don't know that he was doing ecclesial listening exactly, but it's a different kind of qualitative um, approach to understanding uh, what's, what's going on. And, and uh, opinion polls, um, I think, um, are just not going to yield that kind of fruit. So you, you said something along the lines of, you know, there are popular ideas within our culture that kind of become the air we breathe. There's this kind of dominance of, of certain ideas. And I was thinking about that, you know, there's a, there's a big part of synodality in this notion of ecclesial listening, which focuses on the communal aspect of the faith. You know, Catholics put a lot of emphasis on the fact that we're not solely individual believers, but we believe within the church. For example, the in the Instrumentum Laboris, um, it's written that uh, the synodal church promotes the passage from an I to a we. In a lot of ways, I think that sounds really appealing, especially for, for Catholics, that sounds appealing, but it also probably raises challenges associated with, with social structures. So I know you quite like Simon Weil. It made me think about Simon Weil, who was really worried about the church as a social structure, that she felt that herself as a person with these really strong gregarious tendencies she could imagine being caught up in the excitement of a herd mentality so she was looking at the nazi party uh you know when she was alive she was looking back to even some saints who who were uh perhaps overly attracted or who overly justified the inquisition and she didn't want to be part of circles that she said 
in which people say we rather than I. Are, are you concerned about, do you think that's a legitimate worry that she expresses? Yeah, so, um, okay, I'm just thinking about Simone. I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, she's quite drawn to the Catholic Church um, and uh, doesn't actually become a, a member of the church. And I think for the very reasons that you pointed out, um, the, the the beauty of the synod process is it's a it's a global, international listening process where we're we're not just listening to our local communities, but we're 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 really striving to listen to other Catholics in other parts of the world. And um, in the U.S. context, um, the phenomena of Christian nationalism is is alive and well. And that's I think what what Simone Weil was deeply concerned about when she sees Christians, she sees you know ethnic nationalists who. Are part of this Christian, you know, subgroup, and and so, I think one of the ways the Catholic Church can contend with that is to is to draw us into conversations with Catholics from other parts of the world. Um, we see this in in the U.S. context where we have a shortage of priests, and a number of priests now are coming from actually from Africa, and so it, it challenges us to listen in a way that resists being an echo chamber for the politics of the of the, of the moment. Mm. You know, Christians of various stripes can just be parroting the, 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 the political cliches of, of, of a dominant party. And so that's certainly true in a U.S. context um, where we saw, you know, recently President Trump uh, and, and Christian evangelicals being quite caught up in that. Mm. I think where Catholics have um, a distinct advantage, well, Benedict talked about, you know, where, where the Anglican Church has, has really, I think, stumbled is that it, it turns these doctrinal uh, uh, insights and, and subjects them really to a, a majority vote process. I think, you know, with the Catholic Church, there is, is a doctrine that is uh, is not up for a vote. We're not going to take an opinion poll on what do you think about this, this doctrine. Uh, rather, we're going to try to understand how we can live more deeply and more profoundly uh, into the, uh, the truths. And so let me get back to your, your question about Simone Weil. I think to the extent that the church is a global church, it can resist and push back against sort of domestic Christian nationalisms that happen all over the world. We certainly see that with the Russian Orthodoxy right now, which is essentially a, a, a puppet uh, for, for Putin. Mm. Yeah, so there might be these kind of smaller, more kind of parochial we's that we might have to be worried about yeah. because they, they, in a sense, kind of lead us towards this Christian nationalism or this church patriotism that, that Vey talks about. But the, the the kind of the inherent strengths of uh, of the Catholic Church is its very Catholicity, which it means that we, in order to find this, we we have to actually be listening to people who are just you know radically different from us culturally speaking or linguistically speaking, yeah, uh, in terms of their everyday experience. Let me ask you um, a bit of a different question, also about kind of the relationship to, to difference, but the relationship to difference outside of the church. So one of the aspects of the current um, synod on synodality is that there was an emphasis that we shouldn't only be listening to voices within the church, but we should also be trying to hear voices from people in, in kind of in our local communities who are, who are not Catholics or people who've left the Catholic faith, people of other faith traditions or people of no religious belief. What do you see as, as the value in listening to non-Catholics from a church context? Our charge is to, is to be um, 
evangelical. I mean, so we're we're, we're going to go out and talk with with other people. Um, that that charge can be, um, I think, um, over determined or over aggressive in trying to convert or evangelize, and, and that's been part of the Catholic Church's history. Uh, I think Catholics uh, uh, and Pope Francis is calling us to this is that we evangelize through our our actions and our works rather than. Um, you know, making arguments to try to win people over. Um, so I think I think the Holy Spirit is not confined to the Catholic Church. I mean, the Holy Spirit is is in the world working through all of us. So I think one of the prime reasons we listen to other people is the Spirit, as Paul says, it it, it precedes us and it's it's operative, and so uh, it's at work there. And so part of it is listening to the movement of the Spirit in, in other uh, in other people and other other faiths and other traditions. Um, I do think there's a caution, though, you know, in, in trying to understand um, others, we can lose sight of who we are or convinced to go down pathways that are quite problematic. I mean, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful, uh, he talks about, you know, it's not that I'm too good for other people, it's that I'm not good enough. I mean, there's certain there's certain people that have have ways of seeing or ways of living that are contrary to the gospel. And um, to the extent that I'm not morally strong enough, I probably should be very careful about what that listening exchange might look like. So I'm kind of thinking about it in two ways. On the one hand, the spirit is, is operative. On the other hand, uh, it, it may not be operative and we may need to be cautious and careful. Yeah, so maybe we can we can shift a bit. So we've been talking a lot about, about listening and, and a number of times you, you talked about the relationship between listening and learning. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is kind of the focus of a lot of your work as a philosopher of education. You think about the notion of learning, which is a notion that we probably often think of is somewhat straightforward. You, we think it's kind of obvious, you know, how people learn or kind of what learning is. But like many things, if we start to dig beneath the surface, it's, it's not always clear really when learning happens or how it happens. So could you tell us a bit more kind of from your perspective as, as a philosopher of education, kind of how do you understand the act of learning? You know, I think part of it is you're trying to, um, you're trying to animate um, a desire for uh, the true and the good and the beautiful. I mean, you're trying to awaken that, that we are created in a way uh, such that we desire these very things. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of trivial, superficial stuff that can be captivating, um, but our deepest desire is 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 to learn and to be moved in, in some profound ways. And so, I think the very best teachers are thinking about um, how can they um, cultivate epiphanies in students. And I'm thinking of, of James Joyce, where he and his wonderful portrait of an artist as a young man is describing a young person going through school, and there are certain moments where um, he sees something in a, in a, in a poem or, or a piece of literature that just um, inspires him. And, and it really is a glimpse of, of the transcendent beauty uh, of the created order. And so I think the very best teachers are creating the conditions, and this can happen in science classes, in math classes, in literature classes, um, where you're awakening, awakening that. Mm. There's that beautiful moment when Augustine is reading Cicero's Hortensius, and he's confused and lost, and he's pursuing a liberal arts education really as a form of status. This is this is sort of what you need to, to, to get social capital to, to, to be successful in the world. But in reading the Hortensius, he, he just realizes this is actually beautiful and true, what Cicero is writing about. It's not just 
clever arguments. He's actually talking about something and that really um, unsettles him in a, in a really profound way. And so I think the very best teachers are always inviting students into that kind of uh, experience of intrinsic truth. Um, education uh, tends to be uh, instrumental. You're, you're taking this course or, or getting this degree to do this kind of thing in the world, and it loses sight of the intrinsic um, um, beauty there is in the, in the, in the course of study. Mm. So learning can be a, a bridge to intrinsic truth, to, to the transcendental realm, but at the same time, learning clearly also happens within a social context, right? And, and I was reading recently a, a paper by, an old paper by Alistair McIntyre. I don't know if, if you got to take classes uh, with McIntyre when you were at Notre Dame. Yeah. And, and McIntyre, he writes um, that the moral content of our educational system is simply a reflection of the moral content of our society. And so he says, you know, uh, if our society is laudable, then that's great, mm -hmm. but if we disagree with kind of, you know, some fundamental commitments uh, of our society, if we're worried about our society in a way that McIntyre is, then he says the task of the educator is going to be to attempt to stand against that current, which actually is probably just going to overwhelm him. He's not going to be strong enough. Now, McIntyre has this very kind of pessimistic view of modernity, as you know, but do, do you have some sympathy for those worries? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think he's... Um really concerned about how, you know, he talks about how practices, the practice of medicine, uh, the practice of playing the violin, how these get um, kind of uh, corrupted by the institutional context that are actually intended to support these practices. So medicine, rather than, you know, caring for patients, looks at how can we optimize quarterly reports. And so we need to get patients in and out. Physicians, you need to limit your contact points to 15 minutes so you can see 50 patients in a day to generate this kind of income. So he's concerned about these larger social economic forces that undermine the integrity of practices. So I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, and we see this in educational contexts where there's just so many um, um, things that are impinging upon how we teach a class, how we do our work. Um, and there's this tendency too, to try to instrumentalize it so that I set up my outcomes. The syllabi becomes like this, this document of efficiency. What are your outcomes? What are your outputs? And how are you going to deliver on that as a teacher? So you're right that teachers are, or can be overwhelmed by that. I'm not as pessimistic um, being on the ground in classrooms, teaching with colleagues. I think there's, there's a lot of, um, Good resistance to that, and I, and there's still spaces where teachers can awaken the kind of uh, epiphanies that I was I was mentioning uh, before. So I, I share his I see his critique, but I don't, I'm not I don't think it's quite that bleak, thankfully. Yeah, so there's a certain kind of instrumentalism that can undermine the integrity of of practices which are in themselves good. Do you think maybe that also within the church, we, we run that risk? You talked about Tracy Rowland's paper, and one of the things she talks about there is she's worried that there might be uh, an aspect of synodality, which is a kind of, kind of bureaucratization of church life, where kind of saintliness is put to aside in pursuit of more kind of instrumental or kind of, kind of Weberian rational goals. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like trying to legislate your way to virtue. Um, you know, let's create the right laws, put the right systems in place, the right procedures, the right bureaucracy. And I think that is 
kind of what's going on in, in education where we're constantly trying to, from on high, micromanage what teachers are doing K through, through 22. Uh, and um, I, I think that's where the synod process actually has something to offer to the world. Um, uh, we, we, we tend to want to look to the business world or, you know, the, the, the mandarins of, of whatever, you know, great economies are happening as, oh, they're, they're providing systems and ways of doing things. And in fact, I think the synod process, which uh, really, to your point, is about uh, sanctity. It's, it's about how are we, how are we, uh, how are we practicing, you know, um, the disciplines and, 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 and we're, if we're doing that, we're going to be listening uh, better and we're going to be um, um, embodying the synod spirit in a way that um, no procedure or bureaucratic change can ever really guarantee. That said, sometimes, you know, a little democratic governance can be helpful. I mean, I, 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 I'm a Catholic and I've, 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 um, studied with Jesuits and studied at Notre Dame. These are kind of vibrant centers of, of intellectual thought and, and, and practice and preaching. Um, in small town American Catholicism, um, it can be very uneven, the, the, the quality of, of the worship, the music. Um, um, and the priests, I think, um, sometimes just take on an autocratic style uh, that is kind of uh, not hostile to listening, it's just just indifferent to the kind of, of listening. And, and so I think um, while you can't create a perfect bureaucratic procedure, I, I do think there's something to that um, with with the under, underscoring point that it's, it's, it's about our own sanctification process. Yeah, that's excellent. So, so we definitely need, you know, I mean, these things kind of don't happen in and of themselves. We do need some processes or some procedures. And I suppose the the... The trick is to uh, create these processes and procedures without losing sight of the fundamental goal of the integrity of practices. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could talk about something that's, that's a bit related to that. And I'm thinking about a passage uh, in your book on boredom. Mm -hmm. And even though the, the title of the book on, is about boredom, a lot of this book is about kind of you talked about dispositions is kind of cultivating a certain the right kind of disposition for for learning or for truth seeking and one of the distinctions that you make that i think is really interesting is between the modern sense of leisure um and you distinguish that with aristotle's notion of leisure in the nicomachean ethics can you tell us a bit about that distinction and about and about how the aristotelian kind of leisure actually can dispose us to uh, a kind of uh, a genuine form of learning or genuine attentiveness to, to truth? Yeah, so starting with um, the pervasive problem of boredom, um, Heidegger, I think, said that boredom is the fundamental mood of our time. I think he's plagiarizing Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is, is, is sees this, this mood state as, as, as not just a, uh, you know, a, a mood state, but it actually prompts a way of life, uh, which simply put is how do we avoid boredom? How do we live lives that are optimally avoiding boredom? And, and so you have sort of two things going on. Um, uh, you have work where you have to be on and, and, and it can be boring, but you just have to enjoy it or put up with it. But then after work, you uh, partake of amusement, which is essentially what is not work. And it's, it, it tends towards kind of an escapist uh, distraction. Um, and, um, it, you know, 
sometimes gets referred to as leisure, but leisure in the in the classical sense, drawing from Aristotle, which then gets picked up by by Benedict and Evagrius and Catholic scholars, uh, is really about how do we how do we enter into the Sabbath in a way, and it's it's not amusement distraction and it's not work. And so, in thinking about work, I think there's kind of an active engagement, you know, with our our work and our jobs and needing to be on and needing to be professional. And then we enter a sphere of amusement where we can just relax. And so there's sort of a passive uh, quality to it. And there's just a, think of the passive consumer just scrolling. And uh, it's it's quite enticing and seductive. And for the board self, the board mind, that kind of amusement um, is, is very compelling. Sabbath, though, uh, this kind of leisure, it has, uh, uh, Joseph Pieper talks about there's an active and a passive quality to it. There's a receptivity to the kind of leisure that uh, really is, is, is restorative in a way that amusement is not going to be restorative. And so that's, that's the kind of um, leisure that I'm, I'm trying to kind of put out there. I mean, it's, this is not a new idea, but it's, it's an idea that gets, gets obscured um, by modern contemporary amusement culture. So in this kind of more classical sense of leisure, where we're so we're not just turned off. We're just not. We're not just not doing anything. We're somehow oriented towards, I guess, what we identify as the good. Is that right? Yeah. You know, um, the distinction between curiosity and study that Augustine makes. Uh, mm -hmm. Curiosity is often, you know, seen as a positive thing. Augustine actually sees it as kind of the roving, restless mind, and so we're just curious about things we probably shouldn't be curious about. I mean, just just bad, you know, bad headlines in the news can sort of rubberneck us and draw our attention in a way. And we get curious about like how many people died, what happened um, versus study. Study is an ability to, to be attentive and to, to, to have a kind of a single mindedness. And I think what's going on there is to go back to McIntyre. It's it's having experiences where you are um, appreciating the intrinsic value of, of an activity. Um, or a practice. And we, we tend to do practices in very instrumental ways, but actually the practices that we do, um, we, can, we can experience the intrinsic value and goodness of those practices. And when we're doing that, we're entering into a leisurely kind of uh, uh, practice space, um, which requires, it's a discipline. It doesn't just automatically, automatically happen. Um, so that seems to me like to, to start to kind of point to some kind of practical steps towards listening in kind of a deep, profound way, in a spiritual way, where we're not just, you know, I mean, there is a filter. We're not just kind of, you know, turning on the radio and listening to whatever's coming in, but we somehow have to, you talk about this, this cultivating a, a spirit of study. And I really like this, this passage from a book, your book. I'm just going to read it here. To be studious is to cultivate deep attention. It requires auditing one's context to ensure optimal listening. And so it seems to me like when you're talking about this classical notion of leisure, when you're talking about this spirit of study, kind of what you're, you're pointing us towards is how we can listen in a profound and meaningful way rather than kind of just going through the, the motions of just kind of, you know, opening the window and, and seeing whatever comes in. Yeah, the liturgy um, structures our attention. I mean, that's that's really what it's doing. It's it's structuring, guiding, and forming the way we attend. And it's one of the few moments now um, in the week where people actually are not 
being pinged by their phones. I mean, perhaps they are in their church communities, but it's one of the very few where, where phones are turned off and your, your, your attention is being guided and directed. Um, the Sabbath is intended to actually be a day, 24 hours of entering into this kind of uh, uh, listening. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a lost practice and um, I think a vital one and a restorative one that um, is, you know, the, the Synod, I think, uh, you know, needs to have this be a central piece. Um, in, in Laudate Si, uh, Pope Francis, you know, this is the, the, the encyclical on, um, it, it's usually in, in the popular press, it's, it's about the environment, it's, it's Francis's critique of, of, of what we're doing, the harm we're doing to the environment. But at the very center of that document is really a, a Francis laying out what it looks like to be capable of genuine and noble forms of leisure. And to the extent that we can enter into that, we're just going to um, not have these crazy appetites that just draw us and, and, and into, into all kinds of forms of, of endless consumption. And so being able to enjoy simple things and the intrinsic goodness of simple things um, is, I think, striking that that's at the center of what we need to do to, to, to contend with, you know, environmental degradation. Mm. So you talk about about listening in the mass and about the mass being structured so as to to orient our listening. So I think one thing that that people who are kind of yeah maybe on the fence about synodality or skeptical about synodality say is that there seems to be a tension between being attentive, listening to to the Holy Spirit, mm. and listening to one another. Mm. and that one can be confused for the other and you talked a bit about the, the spirit preceding us but could you could could you come back to that and kind of say something about how you kind of reconcile that tension you know the way that the synod sessions are are organized i mean in the uh, instru uh, instrumentus laboris i think that's perhaps how you pronounce that I mean, it offers several guidelines, you know, concrete guidelines for how we can enter into this listening process. And so I think um, that's very important. And I think um, at the center of these guidelines is Catholics have a liturgical practice that helps us listen better. And um, I think we need to draw on some of these, these um, ancient practices, because I, I go to a listening session at my my church and it feels like i'm at a meeting um at, at my university you know everybody's there laptops are open phones are open and alex says something and then chris says something and so i think what what is lacking is um a sense of prayer uh and a practice of prayer and so um spending some time in prayer together and that is happening at, at synod sessions but i think being very vigilant of of, of the liturgical practices that can help guide us as we attend more deeply to one another, um, um, we can lose sight of that. And, and, and the meetings then can become, we talked about the secular sphere and just be like uh, any other meeting that you're going to. And, and, and we're trying to cultivate a very different kind of, of, of meeting space. Yeah, yeah. Um, to shift gears a bit, um, coming back uh, to the question of how learning happens and the relative kind of roles or responsibilities of the teacher and and the student. So at the beginning of our conversation, you talked a bit about historically the laity being relegated to a rather passive role. And sometimes that's associated with this distinction between the, the teaching church 
and 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 listening church, the learning church, you know, the ecclesia docens and the ecclesia descends. There's kind of debate as to whether that distinction should still be maintained by the church today. Sometimes that makes me think of of debates in progressive educational circles in the secular world, which have tried to to introduce a democratic cl classroom or a horizontal uh, teaching uh, model. How how kind of what do you think the wisdom is in those kind of progressive teaching practices? But maybe what are also some of the uh, the cautionary tales that that the church should be aware of? Well, I think the wisdom. Uh on the progressive side is um, understanding your students and how they're they're processing and and making sense or or failing to make sense of what it is you're trying to teach. And so in listening to your students, you're you're really trying to um, in a very charitable and generous way um, sympathize with the, the the blind spots of being an apprentice, being apprentice to a new uh, form of study. Um, and so, um, historically, uh, that was a problem, especially when education became kind of mass education. Um, you know, the, the 18th century schoolhouse, where you had a very mixed group of ages, uh, there was a lot of co-teaching going on there. There were older kids teaching younger kids. There was a lead teacher. But then when you move into a much more industrialized context, you have one teacher with 40 students. And so just managerially, it forces the teacher to just be kind of a talking authority person. And so progressivism is critiquing what happened to education in the early part of the 20th century. And so I think it, it was it was rightly concerned that you're missing a lot of students here. A lot of students are not really uh, go, going to learn in the way that you hope that they would learn. Um, the flip side, though, I think uh, progressives go too far and um, misunderstand that uh, learning often requires you to be an apprentice, a trusting apprentice. And, and you're, you're being initiated into a way of thinking and seeing that from the outside just looks quite strange and peculiar. And, and, and so the, the Ecclesia docens uh, um, Im impetus there is that we need to trust authority. And obviously there's been a, you know, problems with authority that, that we should be quite wary of, but we, we, there's a tendency to let's throw that out and let's, let's democratize everything. And um, I think, that really fundamentally misunderstands um, how we get good at anything. I mean, if I'm going to be a, um, a, a, a master violin player, I need to be apprenticed to someone who really knows this craft and can guide me. And I have some very bad distorting habits and I need to trust the, the, the expert here. And so that is part of where I think the Ecclesia docens is quite vital. However, you know, it, it, it goes both ways. And this is where um, the priests need to be part of the Ecclesia Descends uh, uh, church, as well as, you know, uh, ministers of the, of the docent. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for, for everybody. It's not just uh, the ladies should, should be in this kind of more passive role. Maybe uh, to kind of wrap up our conversation, kind of just to kind of think in practical terms about your own practices. So we're all I think, you know, at our best, we're all trying to 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 listen to one another and, and to listen to the spirit in a more attentive way. How, you know, when you're there, you know, when you're when you're able to do this, how, what are the kind of practical steps that you take in your personal life to be kind of in a more listening mode? Hmm. Um, I would say. 
taking time for prayer. I mean, this is going to sound very simple and cliched, but but spending uh, 15 to 20 minutes each day. Um, I, I, I use the Christian book of prayer, the Christian prayer book. And uh, so to the extent that I'm, I'm doing that on a daily basis, it changes the way I listen to my colleagues and friends and students. So if I have that that, that practice of, of prayer, um, it enables me then to, 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 to listen beyond my anxieties, beyond my, my instrumental checklist of to-dos that I'm trying to get through. And so that, so that would be the most fundamental. And then, and then um, spending time um, um, with the Sabbath where I'm doing these kinds of restorative things. Um, and that's, that's a work in progress. I mean, um, Pieper talks about the totalization of work. And with our technology now, we're just pressed to constantly be uh, working, checking uh, uh, emails and updates and texts. And so um, uh, breaking free from that is also a vital, vital practice. Um, we need, we need a, you know, the Sabbath, remembering to keep the Sabbath holy um, is a mandate. It's a commandment. It's not a, it's not a wellness tip. It's not a suggestion. And so we, we, we do need a commandment, but we also need a church to hold us accountable to living out this commandment. And I think that's something that uh, is, is really important. So having, having friendships of excellence, as Aristotle talk, describes them, friends who actually care about your flourishing and well-being, who are um, calling you to task. And so, so the, the Synod documents talk about being listening in a non-defensive way. And, and so uh, with a friendship of excellence, you're listening to a friend uh, critique you for your lack of, of, of Sabbath practice non-defensively is you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm letting myself drift here. So prayer and friendships of excellence would be the two um, practices that I think are, are, are critical and vital for, for this. Kevin, so we've gone from Augustine to Kierkegaard to Simon Weil to McIntyre. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of things. Uh, you've, you've brought us a lot of wisdom. So thank you very much for for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Autumnus, a production of the Listening Practices in Global Catholicism Project. Please subscribe so that you can join us for other episodes available wherever you get your podcasts.